Um, if you are here for the first time, we are in a series called No God, No Fear. And so if you have an outline, go ahead and take that out. If you do not, um, we have some ushers who could deliver one to you right now, but you should have gotten that as you walked in here to the worship center. And um, the, the specific topics that we're talking about uh, during this series came from a survey that we did first Sunday, 2016, uh, where we asked you, what are your three greatest fears that you have? And uh, this week's topic is an interesting one, because it was one that was said in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different manners, but basically it's dealing with running from God or feeling, am I too far from God to be able to go back to God? Have I sinned against him so much that I can't come back to him? Can God still love me? I feel helpless. I feel hopeless. I'm not sure what I should do. And as those fears kept coming off the cards and I kept reading them, those phrases, I, I just came up with this thought that the answer to that is, you are never, ever too far from God's help. Amen? You are never, ever, as long as you have breath, you are not too far from God's help. And some of you here today saw what we did up in those waters and your heart was beating. It was leaping out of your chest. Maybe you've not done that. Today you will find out more how you can do that. A number of years ago, um, there was an interesting ad campaign for this wear, gear wear, that was called No Fear Gear. I'm not sure if you remember kind of that kind of clothing, but it was, it was uh, no fear shoes, no fear pants, no fear shirts, no fear hats. Uh, and when the company was questioned as to what they were trying to communicate by that label, um, they were asked, you know, is it a dangerous thing that you're trying to get people to do, the no fear? They, they said, no, it was to buy a sense of self-confidence or a sense of self-esteem. And so the slogan really extended to a lot of different areas of life. There were pilots in the military that took the decals, no fear, and they put them into their cockpits and they put them onto the windows. There were others who put them onto their bumper stickers uh, throughout the highways and people who were driving up and down in their homes and on their books at school. And they put these, these decals and these bumper stickers, no fear. I remember seeing, in fact, on the news when that was going on, there was some flooding going on in the Midwest. And as the waters were rising, there was a family up on top of their home and they had taken some sandbags and they had spelt the word no fear on top of their house house as those wa rising waters came. And, and it was really kind of a, a mantra that a rallying cry for a bold and kind of this uh, 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 individualized society that we had until there was a place for fear to be experienced. Let me tell you about one in my own life. I'm not sure how many of you are afraid of heights. Um, I never have been. And so about I don't know how many years ago it was. It was when I was doing the crosswalk services much more often in our gymnasium. But there were a couple of lights that went out up top of the, of, the, of the roofs. And they were in the middle of the room. So it wasn't up against a wall where we could lean a ladder. It had to be straight up. And we didn't have a lift to do that. And there were some beams going across. So you had to lay the ladder up against the beams to be able to crawl up and do that. And so I'd ask the custodians, hey, can you guys come and, and help us do this? And so there are, there are three or four different custodians down there at the bottom of it. And we kind of looked at each other. And I said, okay. Okay, who's ready to go up and do that? 
one by one by one by one, they said, not me, not me. I'm not going up there, not me. And I looked at all of them like, how many staff members does it take to change a light bulb at First Baptist Church? (laughs) So I said, all right, I'll go up and do it. So I grabbed a bulb and I started walking up and I went all the way and I went all the way up. And then I felt a little something. I was like, this is not a good place to be feeling this. So I went back down the ladder and I got down to the bottom and made some excuse like, oh, wrong light bulb, right? So I got the other light bulb. I went up. I got about halfway up and I could tell my equilibrium was off. I was not going any higher. Can I say crow is not a lot of fun to eat as you're coming back down a ladder? And, I, and I, I, as if I went up with this no fear kind of attitude, I came down with my tail between my legs, knowing lots of fear. And maybe there are some of you in this room today that you came in here, kind of maybe it doesn't physically say it, but on your heart you're saying, I have no fear. I'm in control of my life. I got things figured out. No one needs to tell me what to do. I got this taken care of. If so, you wouldn't be the first one to have that kind of an attitude. In fact, one of the first persons to have that kind of an attitude and who modeled this no fear gear was a young man who Jesus talked about in the Bible in the book of Luke. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to open them up to Luke chapter 15. Luke is in the back two-thirds of the Bible. It's what we call the New Testament. Go back three books in, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you get to John, you're too far. Go back another book. If you have your outline, many of the verses are on your outline. But there's a lot of people, as we're kind of setting up the story, who, who cover up their fears, who cover up their anxieties with, with a sense of cockiness that says, hey, Bring it on. No fear here. I bow to no one. If I do bow to anyone, it's in front of a full-length mirror. I carve my own cars. I determine my own destiny. I rule my relationships when really a sense of helplessness is being masqueraded through that. And maybe you see yourself in this story today. And so let me kind of quickly identify how this young man got into a place of feeling helpless and out of control. Here's how Jesus started into the story. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 and 12. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided, his father divided his property between his two sons. At some point in his life, there was this deep desire within this younger son that emerged that he could not shake off. There was a voice that came up that said, hey, who is in control of your life anyway? Why don't you break free and do your own thing? Don't make your father's morals your morals. You can do what you want to do. Nothing's going to hold you back. And he approaches his father and he says, hey, I want to live the Middle Eastern dream. Give me my stuff and let me go. And what in essence he was saying to his father is you're as good as dead to me. I don't need you in my life anymore. You you give me what is rightfully mine and I will go and not worry about you. You're as good as dead. You're done. And what he has done is he's entered into what we would call 
the delirious phase. And go ahead and on your outline, you can fill that out. The delirious phase. What do I mean by that? This is the stage when you find out, hey, sin can be kind of uh, fun. Look at verse 13. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. As he found out, there's this certain intoxicating feeling of of independence, and I am in control. I'm doing the things that nobody told me that I could. I'm doing some of the things that people told me I couldn't do. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. I'm in charge. I'm in control. Uh, how many of you remember getting um, your, the, the day, the very day you remember getting your driver's license? You remember that? Okay. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Right? I can still remember. I was often, you know, driving with my permit, so my parents had to be in the car. But that first day when I had gotten my driver's license, it was on my 16th birthday. And I came home from school, and my parents were there, and they said, here you go. You can go out and drive on your own. And I remember driving out of the driveway, backing out, and this huge smile came out over my face. Like, I can do whatever I want. And I drove, I mean, it was so unique to be in that car without any bells. And I drove around to the back part of the block. And I felt like, maybe I can turn this music up just a little bit. And I can put my foot on the pedal just a little harder. And I did. It was fun. I mean, I revved that engine. I kind of squealed the brakes. And I kind of, you know, burned a little bit of rubber. I was like, woo, that can be intoxicating. That That is fun. And then I drove back home, and I said, thanks, Mom and Dad. And, you know, that was, that was good. You were waiting for me to crash the car, weren't you? I, I, I didn't. I didn't. But I felt like it. I, I felt like, wow, I am on my own. I can do my own thing. This is kind of cool. It's fun. But if it's against what we should be doing, then it's a delirious stage you're in. Sin takes us to that place. Because when we're in that place for too long, we hit what is called the next fill-in there, the destruction phase, the destruction phase. That is, it only becomes a matter of time before the delirious stage takes us into the destruction stage. Let me read verse 14. And when he had spent everything, everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in what? He began to be in need. He had spent everything. His resources were burned out. His friends were gone. His clothes were tattered. There was heaps of trouble around him. His, his, his delirious fun stage of sin had entered into this destruction phase. And sins like that promise success, end in failure. They start out good. They start out right. But they end in this destruction stage which is brutal. Look at verse 15. So he went, hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. 
and no one gave him anything. Think, if you think of those pods, they were kind of some Middle Eastern tree droppings that were kind of filler for the pigs to eat, would fill their stomach up. Think of a packing material, okay? Think of that popcorn styrofoam stuff you had there. That's about what he was desiring because he was so hungry to eat something. And yet the scripture says, no one even gave him anything. He's in this destruction phase. Which leads to the next phase. That is because in verse 17, it goes on to say, but he came to himself. NIV says he came to his senses. And so the next phase in there is the decision phase. The decision phase. This is the stage where we understand how helpless we really are. And when you come to this place, you really have two different options. You put forth a greater no-fear kind of mentality, and you try and do it yourself. You're saying, I can still do this. I can do this and be stubborn and make it work. Or, or you do what the prodigal son did, and you say, help. Help. Look what it says in verse 18. I will rise, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before who? I have sinned before God, I have sinned before as well. Now notice what he's saying here, and that if this was in 2016, this might be a little different, because in 2016, we say these things like, you know, the reason I didn't uh, uh, turn out so good is because I didn't receive counseling as a teenager, and my life is all messed up. You know, he, he didn't say the reason I, I, I did this and ran out and, 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 and did my own thing was because I came from a dysfunctional family, and my dad was an absentee, and my mom was an alcoholic. I mean, he didn't go into any of those types of excuses. In fact, look at verse 20, the first part of it. it says, and he arose and came to his father. He arose and came to He came back home. He realized he was not beyond where his father was, his father's love. See, some of you in here today need to make that decision. Some of you in here today are in the delirious phase. You're having fun with it. And for whatever reason, maybe you came here to see the baptisms. Maybe someone invited you. Or maybe you just continue to come to church because it's the thing they used to do on Sunday morning. But you're in that delirious phase. You're in an area of sin that you know you should not be in, but you're having fun with it. Destruction awaits. It comes and it comes hard and it comes unexpectedly. And there's a decision we can make. And you can receive the full consequences of that sin and that destruction, or you can make a decision before that where maybe it doesn't have to go so far. And so let me be a prophet in your life to say, if you're in that place of saying, okay, God, I haven't reached the destruction, but I know I will someday, then the decision needs to be made. And it says in verse 20, he got up and he went to his father. And today, some of you may be not making that kind of decision to go back home because maybe you fear the shame. Maybe you're fearful of losing control. Maybe you're fearful of, you know, what is God going to make me do? What is God going to think of me? What, what happens when I come back and confess what I did? You ever did something stupid when you were younger in your life and you kind of regretted it? Um. We could probably fill the rest of the, store, or the service up with some of that kind of stuff. Let, let me tell you about one. I, I was in junior high. And um, I, I was a pretty good kid in our junior high youth group. And uh, enjoyed going to camps. We, we had camps that we would go to. It was Camp Sugar Pine. And um, 
There were a couple of my friends, in fact, there were six of us who decided to skip out on one of the sessions at camp and um, one of the night sessions and go up the hill to a place called TP Village. So it was about a mile up the hill from the camp and we decided to do it. Just so happened that it was three of us guys and three gals who were doing this together. We went up the hill. Now, hold on a second here. Now, hold on. I did not kiss anyone on that trip, all right? All right? I'm not going to say there wasn't any kissing going on, but there was some going on. It was not with me, okay? (laughs) We're up the hill. We did whatever. We talked and whatever. It was just kind of a rebel to be not in the meeting time, right? And we came back down a little too late because the camp counselors had already done cabin check, and we were not there. And so we stood before the camp director. He gave us a talking to. And he said, girls, you may go to your cabins. Boys, you may go to your cabins. That was the last night of camp. Woke up the next day, came back home, feeling pretty guilty, feeling like, what did I do? Why did I do that? Am I going to get busted? Am I going to get in trouble? And when I got home, I was in a living hell because I did not know if my parents were going to find out or not. And I can still remember being there every time the telephone rang, a shot of adrenaline shot right through my body. (laughs) Is that the call? Is that the phone call that I was going to get in trouble? What was going to happen? In fact, I still remember I was in my bedroom one night, a couple nights after I got back, and a phone rang, and again, shot of adrenaline through my body. I waited, I waited. My mom was on the phone. She got off the phone. She hung up the phone. She walked into my room. I started hyperventilating. didn't say anything. She walked right over to my dresser. She put something away into my dresser, and she walked right back out. I put myself through more hell that week by not knowing if I was going to get caught or not. In fact, so much so, nobody, in fact, my mom's listening to this on the internet. She will be this last week. This is probably the first time she heard me tell this story. She didn't ever know I confess this to my wife and my kids this week. They never knew. (laughs) But I put myself through pain and agony and suffering because I didn't just come home and say, I made a stupid decision. A whole week before I realized, okay, nobody was going to call. I got away with it. Some of you are getting away with it right now. You could do so much better. If you just came to God first and said, God, I am sorry. And if you wrong somebody else, be it your work, be it a relationship, whatever it may be, and say, I'm sorry, i got to get done with this. This is a decision phase. It's a phase that you need to be in to say, I shouldn't have done X. I need to get it right. Because here's the thing. I should have just told my parents. I put myself through more anxiety and more fear that they wouldn't find out. None of us, none of us here have done anything that God is surprised at. Understand me on that. My parents would have been surprised. My parents will be surprised. (laughs) None of us have done anything that surprises God. Not last month, not last week, not last night. And our God is a God who says, come. 
if you have repentant heart, if you have a heart that's ready to be welcomed back home, none of us are beyond the reach of God. No matter where you've done it, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, you are not in the helpless phase. You are not in the helpless phase. But it does require a decision. And today, some of you may be in that decision phase right now. And you know it. Your heart's beating. You're saying, i got to get this off my chest. I need to do something about this. Yes, you do. And the last phase that I want to talk about then is the deliverance phase. It's a sense of deliverance. This is a stage that's only for those who have the guts. We all go through the first three stages. We all do at some point. Sin enters each of our lives. We make stupid decisions. We do the wrong things. We get delirious. Then we enter into destruction. Then we enter that phase. What am I going to do? Am I going left or right? Am I making a decision or am I not? The fourth stage is only for those who want the help and are bold enough to ask for it. Verse 20. He, the son, arose and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and what? He kissed him. This shows the the father waiting for his son's return, waiting and watching. Maybe he was up at a rooftop. Maybe he was at the edge of the property. We don't know exactly for sure. But the Bible implies that when he saw his son from far off. And how did he know it was his son? We don't know for sure. But he knew it. He knew that was his son. And the Bible says he ran. He ran to his side ran to his son. And and I've shared this thought before. This is the only time in all of Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, where God is personified as running or in a hurry. Nowhere else do we ever see God in a hurry. Only here in this story, as this father figure takes the place of God, running for his child. And he runs. See, Middle Eastern men did not run. It was unheard of. To hike up your robe and take off and run. Especially for a wealthy, well-respected, elderly landowner like he was. And when he ran to his son, he put his arms around him and he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Bad? Because the verb in the Greek says it over and over and implies it over and over and over and over again. He kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. Which would have been in direct contrast to what he really should have done. Because legally, you can go back to the book of Deuteronomy and the father knew this. Legally, his son could have been stoned for what he did. Stoned for what he did. And yet the father, by stepping in there and hugging his son, and we don't know if there were townspeople gathered around. We don't know if they had rocks in their hands to do what was legally needed to be done. But that father was stepping in there in front of his son. And what the father was saying is that if you're going to stone my son, you have to stone me first. You have to come through me first because this is my son and I'm not taking my embrace off of him. I love him. I love him. What a picture of what Jesus did for us. Scripture says, while we were still helpless, while we were sinners, Christ died in our place. He gave up his life for ours. few years ago, I, um, 
met with a young man who had been coming to our church from uh, University of Pacific. And he uh, was a Buddhist, by probably more by family than by practice. But we got to talking about a number of different things in his life, and, and he had some questions about Christianity uh, because he really did feel helpless in, in that faith and in that practice, and it really wasn't taken in many places. We talked a little bit about, you know, he was feeling kind of this sense of no worth and, and, and depression, um, and, and we talked about some of his beliefs, kind of the enlightenment that he was trying to work himself towards the nirvana, um, this cessation of suffering that was supposed to be what he could do in his life. And, and um, uh, as I heard what he was saying I thought, you know, I remember a great story that Ron Carlson told about a Buddhist who had given his life to Christ. And and let me share it with you, as I shared with that young man on a park bench here in Stockton. I talked to him and I said this. I said, said, there was a man that I'd heard of who was a Buddhist, and he had a dream. And he had this dream that he was drowning in a lake, and he didn't know how to swim. And he looked up onto shore... And Buddha was standing up there on the shore, yelling to him, saying, hey, here's how you swim. Move your hands this way. Kick your legs this way. You can make it. Come on. You can make it to shore. Here's how you do it. Go, go. And then Jesus walked up on the shore. And he came to the edge of the water, but he didn't stop. Jesus dove into the water, swam out to meet the man, rescued him, and brought him back up onto shore. And the man said, as Jesus then brought me up onto shore, then he later taught me how to swim so that I could go back out and rescue other people. And as I shared that story with that young man, you could just see kind of a light bulb go on. Yeah, he was trying to work his way. He was trying to be taught in the midst of his anxiety and depression and fearfulness and helplessness, things that he could not do. And he felt like he was drowning. And yet to surrender your life to Christ and allow him to pull you to shore, allowing him to rescue you, is really what the Christian faith is about. That's what baptism does. I mean, it is such a beautiful picture, and Derek explained this so well. You, you, you go backwards into the water as though you're dying and going into the grave. I mean, how much more of a helpless, I've seen some of the guys and the gals walk in here now, how much more of a helpless feeling is there than going backwards underwater? And yet, then you shoot out of the grave as Jesus is symbolized rocketing out of the grave in the resurrection power, and you come to new life in him dead to yourself and alive in what God wants to do in your life. And as I told that young man about that, I said, um, what's stopping you from turning to Jesus right now? And he gave me one word. He he said, fear. Fear. I prayed for him. And he came. He actually had a twin brother. They both came around our church for a number of years. And it wasn't until two or three years later that he finally gave his life to Christ. And I still remember the day we were able to baptize him and celebrate that with him. Gave his life to Christ. It took him a while. He went through some more stuff in his life that he didn't have to go because Jesus was there waiting that day. Decision phase. You now know what the deliverance is. In fact, if you do me a favor, go back and look at your outline. Track maybe where you are. 
Are you in the delirious phase? Maybe, maybe sin is still a little fun for you. You're enjoying it. Or maybe you're in that destructive phase. Maybe you're feeling the consequences of your sin and they're getting heavier on you right now. Or maybe it's a decision that you finally realize you need to make. Well, today is a day, just like we've seen so many people get baptized up here, that you can be delivered. Because every one of these people who said yes to Jesus realized they couldn't do it on their own. They could not swim to make sure on their own. They allowed Jesus to bring them in. They allowed him to deliver them. And I'm convinced that there are many people here still today who are at the deliverance stage. And today you've heard the call for a decision. And so my prayer is that you will make that. And even as we're being, you know, distracted, maybe even that siren can distract you. No, 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 fake it. still focus here. And if you've already made this decision, you pray for the people on your left and your right because there's some spiritual warfare that will go on here. And we just want to make a call to action, saying, what's your next step? What's your next step? And I want to do that in a spirit of prayer. And so if we could just close our eyes, every head bow, every eye closed. If we could just take a moment to say, um, God, we celebrate today this atmosphere of praise for so many who are being baptized. Lord, as we watched that, we watched a, an awesome depiction of surrender to you. And what that means. And yet, Lord, um, even as we were singing and clapping and worshiping, we also know that um, each of us has to come to that place in our own lives of what that means to us. Just witnessing with someone else coming to a place of salvation is not enough. We each have to make our own decision. And so, folks, let me just ask you, not to be distracted with what's going on around you, but before God, can you say, Lord Jesus, I have fully surrendered to you. If today you have not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, if he is not your Savior, if you have not yet prayed, God, I'm giving my life up to you now. I'm surrendering my agenda to yours. I realize now that you went to the cross. In my helpless stage, you died for me. You took my place. I should have been the one stoned, but you take that place for me. If today you realize, yes, by faith, I want that in my life. I want a relationship with this kind of a God. Then I'm just going to ask you in your own heart if you would pray for that. If you pray, Lord Jesus, I pray today that you would come into my life. And what you did, now before you pray this, but what you're saying is that your life is going down the wrong path. You don't want to go that way. You want to repent. You want to make a U-turn, just like the son, the prodigal son did. And so if today you could pray a prayer just like that, just to say, Father God, I'm coming home. Father God, I give my life to you today. I surrender to you. If you pray to prayer just like that, there are angels, Scripture says, who are rejoicing right now. And I'm going to challenge you to take the next step. That is, after the service is done, if you would talk to the friend who brought you, maybe to a youth pastor, maybe to another pastor up here on stage, I'll be down here in the front row. We have a next step center. They have counselors that are there and some information for you. We want to challenge you to take that next step and said, here is my decision today. 
And I want you to understand that we're one day going to be applauding and clapping for you if you would take the bold step of also walking into the waters of baptism like you just saw here today. Now, there are others all across this uh, auditorium who you've already prayed to receive Christ, but you're just not making him Lord of your life right now. You're running. You're still out. You're in that delirious phase. Destruction is hit, and you know you need to come back. You know you need to come back home. Maybe physically you're present, but uh, emotionally and with your heart, you're, you're not there. And so today's a time of repentance. Today's a time of saying, God, I'm ready to come back home. I'm not fearful any longer of other things that are going to happen to me. What others think, God, I'm, I'm coming home today. I'd even say this, folks. If, uh, if you're wanting to make a decision, come down here to the front. We're going to sing another worship song. You are more than welcome to bow the altar here in the front of the sanctuary. Even if you want to come out of the balcony, you're, you're welcome to do it wherever you want in this room, auditorium. Some people just enjoy some altar time. We want to open that up. You're welcome to do that. We want to celebrate your decision today. And we want to help you take that next step. Be bold, be faithful, be open to what God wants to do in your life. God, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for calling us to a new place. We thank you for not leaving us out with the pigs, but allowing us, allowing us to come home and be delivered from what we've been going through. God, we love you. We love your grace. We love your goodness. Thank you for the miracles that you did even here today. And even as we continue to worship you now, Lord, may you have your way. May your spirit move in us. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray.